Hi, Alan. Hi there, Richard. Alan, we we agreed to um, talk today about uh, changes to things like attention and concentration after a brain injury. And I wondered from your experience if maybe you could just start by telling us a bit about how that's changed for you and some of the things that you've noticed about attention and concentration that's maybe different to what you might expect or what what might have been the case before your injury uh i would say before my injury and obviously this is a bit of a swing in the dark here because obviously i can't remember that well but sure was probably about average i wouldn't say i was exactly perfect to have kind of like an attention span but i think it was kind of it'd certainly be better than what it is now let's say um um and i think through through my kind of recovery it's 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 got better. I think at first it was it was like non-existent almost. But my parents had told me that they had to repeat a number of things, and that um, when I saw professors or specific people, that they had to kind of repeat what they had said to me or put it across in a different form of text or, or way in which I could understand it. Um, and I, I think that's just the, the natural process of obviously like the brain slowly repairing itself or possibly me like learning strategies through my rehab and through my re- recovery uh, being able to sort of like obtain and hold information and do you think because uh, you mentioned about the period directly after your accident and how that was particularly difficult in terms of these um, aspects of your cognitive processing can you say a bit about what that felt like and what your experience was almost as if you're thinking back to what kinds of things you really struggled with then well, it's, it was is is very frustrating. Let's put it that way, and it was um, it's it's hard to kind of remember like what someone's literally just said to you. Like you, you try. I can remember thinking back to like some of the days when, like, obviously, I was going through like meeting professionals because the the claim was kind of being obviously coming to an end, and obviously I'm having like different sides, both my side and the defendant side, kind of like questions and sort of like. I've been put into situations and I've got to remember who crossed the road and what was the name of the, the guy at the telephone box and what colour this was and everything like, and all these small details, even though I heard them like literally milliseconds ago, being able to relate that back to the professor obviously who's who's doing these exercises, like it was it was horrible. And even trying to be able to think back after these kind of meetings, you think I still can't remember what he said, or was he kinda of like kinda of trying to trick me? But obviously when you know it now like in the past, like I can't remember obviously what what he did tell me like detail wise, but I can remember obviously he's, he told me something, but why I couldn't remember time is like is 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 puzzling like now to be fair. It sounds incredibly disabling, and as you as you're saying it, it's almost as if that ability to hold on to information and um, almost process what people are saying to you is is massively different. Uh, I'm wondering how that sort of played out socially, if you were amongst other people like family or friends, how you how you managed that. Obviously, with the family and everything like that, obviously, like it, it was difficult and hard for them to see. Obviously, because they had like a a reasonably bright young lad who was really physically fit and was was did a lot of things and obviously could take a lot of instructions. Who was a good like team leader, good like, good team player. Obviously, kind of had his own inputs and everything. Blah blah blah. That could you a guy that really then can only take instructions because he can't he can't process or think of his own 
inputs to better the same team sort of thing. And obviously because mum and dad care for me quite a lot, obviously that, that repeating and repetitiveness for them obviously is a part of their care. I'm sure it was very annoying if I asked them. Um, but obviously being parents, like you don't have to do anything for your children, whether it's a thousand times one time or for the rest of your life sort of thing. So I think, I think in one hand, that was easier in comparison to my friends and that, because obviously my friends and that were, like, were choosing not to see me and stuff like that, because obviously it's hard for them to keep repeating the conversation. But before my car accident, they could have just said the once and I would have responded back. And do you think that, because as you're talking, Alan, what I'm thinking is one of the really interesting things here is the overlap between our attention and our memory. And I think we talked about this a bit the other day, actually. It's almost as if if our attention is broken, our attentional system, then the information doesn't really get as far as our memory. So we've got no chance of remembering it. And that's a particular kind of memory impairment, isn't it? It's particularly profound in some cases because people can't retain any information. And I'm not suggesting you were you were at that at that level. And but it sounds like what you're describing is something similar whereby you were unable to hold information uh for even short periods of time and um, in or for long enough to process it and remember it does that make sense yeah no i think looking back at sort that's all like early recovery alan and like me now sort of thing but i think i think I, I i was like that i think my concentration was absolutely awful and anything that was said to me 30 seconds later i'd be asking again or or needing it to be repeated kind of thing like it was it's, it's, it's quite scary to think so like that long ago I, I was that bad and like I still like still struggle to this day so nowhere in, in comparison to what it was like at the beginning of my sort of recovery my attention is 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 certainly a lot better than what it was early after my um, accident um, but I think like sadly because of the injury my, my, my attention span is still not not 100% just yet uh, I'm hoping like through time that that may may get closer to 99 or even possibly hit 100 one day but i've always got to re- remember that i've got the injury so my brain won't ever be so like fully charged or back to how how i used to be naturally because of the injury that's that's just what i've been dealt with now so i've got to accept that yeah it feels different now and and not as it should be yeah it doesn't feel so much natural so to speak like i have to i have to think harder to be able to sort of like as much as concentration is a part of thinking like I've got to sort of like consciously think to attend as as, as silly as that sounds no I, I understand what you're saying and are there certain things that make it easier to to do that and and conversely are there things that make it harder so I'm just wondering about conditions here but be that stuff like your environment or how you're feeling, those kind of things. Can you think of any things that make it easier? I'd certainly try using it helps you kind of like remember. So an iPhone with a notes, a pen and paper if you prefer it that way. Um, maybe try and associate things with like your personal life. I find like sometimes easier. And I know you can't relate everything back to your personal life, but if there's things or, or certain things you need to remember, being able to kind of like, associate yourself i find it much easier to remember because that's one of the strategies that i learned uh, during rehab 
was trying to associate to yourself or like something that you normally would remember or anything like that. It's, it, it sounds strange to kind of explain it, even though it's sort of like a second nature to me now because I do it so naturally. Um, it seems to it seems to work for me to be able to live as normal as I'm doing now, sort of thing. It might not perfect, but like I say, my brain is damaged, so I can't I can't expect it to be perfect. So even if I get half the information correct, that's better than none. Yeah, and and what do you think are the things that make it harder? And what would make it less likely that you'd be able to concentrate or attend to something now? Certainly, if there's loads of things going on in the same room or area that you're in, so like distraction, mm. noise, visual, or or like on and off again to someone who's normal and has a healthy brain that that they could see past that quite easily. But I think someone like myself and people with my condition will find that very tricky and obviously the more the more distraction in the background the, the less likely you're going to hear or be able to remember anything that's being told yeah i think that alerts me uh, to certain kinds of environments that would maybe be likely to be harder for you now and for other people with attentional kind of problems i'm thinking about things like shops or um, pubs or coffee shops um those kind of things where there's a lot of background noise or there's a lot of movement, or there's just a lot of kind of stimulation, which would maybe distract you from what it is that you're trying to focus your attention on. Is that would that be fair? Yeah, no, I I, I could completely agree. Oh yeah, definitely. That's, so that's that's why kind of during like therapies now sort of thing, or when I meet with like close friends and stuff like that, if if it's, if if I'm not seeing them for a little while, I will I will more than likely kind of invite them kind of over to my house or to see if I can go. See them. It's going to be a little bit more um, settled, much going on. So I can yeah. add up with what I've kind of missed out on how long it is since I've last seen that friend or family member in that case. Are there any things, Alan, that you can think of that are particularly risky? This may be sort of a bit of a leading question because I've probably got some things in mind, but things that might be risky now because of attentional problems things that you would do that would maybe generate increased risk. And maybe if not now, and you know, you were talking about earlier in your recovery when these things were much more pronounced, things that would have been maybe a bit kind of dangerous or that you would probably have avoided. Yeah, so because because a healthy brain would be able to kind of identify a um, dangerous situation, naturally that healthy person would walk away or try and evacuate the areas as 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 quickly and as quiet as possible. Obviously, because of my cognitive skill and some of my thought processes are not as as sharp as what they were. Um, yeah, sometimes that could kind of set me up, kind of to fail or to to meet the wrong people. Might be the right place in a coffee shop where there's loads of people and the safety of myself is is higher, but that doesn't mean conversation is about or where where the conversation could then lead to. Um, isn't dangerous because like I say my my normality thought process isn't isn't as accurate or as quick as what it was I'm thinking also about because I think that's a really good point and I think that the the world now is obviously a different place in terms of risk isn't it so years ago the risks used to be sort of almost uh visibly apparent or in front of you or kind of tangible ones whereas now they might be a bit more virtual or remote 
I'm thinking particularly around things like internet use and social media, that social media and um, a lot of internet advertising, for example, is very much based upon using distraction to uh, get, almost to their advantage and to get you to do things or agree to things that you probably otherwise wouldn't. So they're almost trying to overstimulate you in that context, aren't they? And they being the people that produce this, um, these sites and these um, these platforms, either for advertising purposes or, or, or to maybe even actively exploit you. But do you think there are risks there, Alan, for people with attentional problems? Yes, I would say so. And and not just sort of like visually, but sort of like um like these people that are like making like random videos that, that think it's funny to kind of sort of like attack people or or do like set people up to, to make certain failures so that then they can kind of get like a higher like and all this kind of thing. Like yeah, see that that's quite dangerous again because you're not so so aware as what you used to be before. Um that that could lead to problems. And potentially because because of my vision, um, like women, women is probably a is is a is a big factor in the problem because obviously as as a man as a lad kind of thing like a woman dressing the wrong thing or or kind of like uh, like waving it might be not waving at you but waving at someone behind you kind of thing like but that would attract my attention so then the person or persons I'm listening to would then kind of like kind of go on and they wouldn't really be there even though they're there and they could be telling me very important information, which, which because someone else has attracted my attention, their attention has disappeared. Yeah. And I, I suppose one thing we've not talked about much, Alan, I think in our previous discussions either is that uh, uh, around your uh, visual, um, visual impairment. So if we combine an attention impairment with changes to our senses, for example, the risks could, probably be greater but maybe we could we could probably talk about that at another time um, but it's probably worth recognizing that too uh, and the, one of the reasons for raising that Alan, was an example that i remember from an awful long time ago when um, you moved into your new flat yeah uh, and this is going back a long time and it had been snowing and they had cleared the roads but they'd put the snow in big piles at the end of the road and you were been walking along and um had been looking at your phone. I don't know if you even remember this, but it stuck in my mind. And you walked into one of the piles of snow. Do you remember this? I remember walking straight past my my, my road that I lived down because obviously the, the 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 landmarks so that I used to look for had changed. Yeah, so it's almost as if the um there were probably a, a number of things going on there, weren't there, in terms of things not looking like you expected them to look, but also maybe some form of distraction. Because the reason for saying that was about how people are so prone to become distracted by their phones now. And, and I'm not talking there about brain injury specifically, because we're all prone to this, and we've all done it, is that our phones suddenly become far more interesting than what we're supposed to be attending to. And then we're liable to make mistakes, and some of those could be quite big mistakes too. That's true, and obviously because like these like latest iPhones and Android phones make like so many different noises for like so many different apps, like yeah, I can agree that a phone in the pocket that's not on silent certainly in important meeting like you might as well not even be at that meeting if you're going to leave the phone on loud sort of thing. So yeah, again, 
sort of like coming back to our discussion and sort of like concentration, yeah, phones are a big um, distraction. You know what you're saying earlier about frustration, and so I asked you about what that kind of with um, what that was like earlier in your recovery, and you mentioned about the high level of frustration that it had when you couldn't concentrate on what people were telling you and you couldn't remember what they'd said. I'm just wondering if frustration itself could become a distraction. It could be, of course, because obviously, and I only know this because obviously my experience in, in having the injury and, and learning about frustration and stuff, obviously during my rehab time and stuff like that, but obviously when, when frustration comes on board, obviously certain chemicals in the brain then sort of like chemicals in the brain, which then causes a domino effect in being able to remember anything find any form of attention or listening or anything like that but yeah so like at the early at the early stage of my my recovery I've, I've never been an aggressive person but I could I could feel myself sort of like getting a little bit annoyed at myself because I wasn't able to remember that 30 seconds ago the story that I was told I couldn't retract any information from and like for me it's quite easy to diffuse uh, frustration in in sense of, of anger in the sense of my own confidence and self belief, um, it did lower. It did lower my in that in that in that form. Mm. I mean, I can only imagine how frustrating frustrating that must be. And and um, I have to say that in all the time that I've known you, I've felt that you have managed that frustration incredibly well. But sometimes it is evident that that is becoming very stressful, and certainly. Um, Earlier on in your recovery, I think that was very apparent how stressful that could be because you weren't able to achieve that level of concentration that would have enabled you to um, engage with the information or or remember it. And that can be very compromising, can't it? It can, yeah, because it can, it can make you kind of sort of like, like, your, like your thought process go a little bit, a bit more impulsive and maybe not so um, not so keen on listening to other people that they want to give i think back to a lot of a lot of times in my in my early recovery where I, I could have listened to kind of experts and therapists and and professionals like yourself richard and if i had listened then maybe i would have been at this i am now a bit quicker or maybe the place that i am now could have been a little bit more advanced but i suppose like like in everyone with and without a brain injury you've got to learn by your own mistake yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, I think that's a really good and important point. And also the fact that you can't, sometimes you can't run before you, you walk. So some of these skills that we're talking about, some of these abilities have to, it takes time for them to improve. And uh, you can't fast track that particularly. So it might be that certain things have to wait until these things are are working at a certain level before they can happen too and one thing that you've got like with the brain injury and, and this, this also kind of messages out to people without the brain injury helping people with the brain injury that you said that obviously like learning these skills and kind of like failing at things and learning by them takes time but what you've got to remember is someone with a brain injury can't then obtain the information that they've they've done wrong that easily so you need to give them time to be able to sort of like not only remember what they've done when they've got the memory problem as it is, but then remember what they, which caused what they've done, which then caused kind of this conversation being started in the first place. So, so, so frustration can be heightened quite a lot in, in these times. But you're trying to 
remember what you've done that caused what you did, but then remember what you shouldn't do so it doesn't happen again. It's, it's, it is a very complex and complicated situation, mm. but time is of the essence and only time can heal. How about confidence, Alan? How would you say your confidence was affected by these specific changes? Well, I think, sadly, um, a lot of things had striked the part of my brain that kind of gave me confidence, that had self-belief, which is another form of confidence, confident in knowing what I did and where I wanted to do. I think, I think sadly, with, throughout my recovery, I've chipped away at things that have, have increased my confidence and kind of got me to the confidence and where I am today. And a lot of people like, will say to me, like, oh, wow, I can't believe you did that. Like, oh, wow, I can't believe you did that. When they think about what I was like all those years ago when I first woke up out of my coma and stuff. But I think, I think the way in which I have progressed, I think, has been healthy in the sense that because I was able to see in my own confidence, things getting better, it, it made me more um, confident and motivated to then want to change something else in my life to then give me more confidence, if, if that makes sense. It does. And what you've introduced there, uh, which I'm really interested in, is the link between confidence and motivation, really, or this this thing about change that what what you were noticing was changes in some of these things that you were able to improve uh, as you were recovering, and this meant that actually your motivation to try certain things or do more um, actually correspondingly changed. So it almost set up this uh, this sort of cycle, really this positive sort of feedback loop. Yes. Richard and I'm sure you can remember this from my early days of us working together is I used to hate change like simple change of changing room or changing the colour shirt I used that I, that I walked out the house in like for me would send my anxiety would immediately drop my confidence and would, would increase my self frustration even though they're, they're such subtle and simple things for myself that that at the time was was quite big but then obviously listening to therapists and kind of trying new things and giving that therapist a bit of confidence that that if i just let this go that maybe all this will disappear or, or eventually get better and and not really knowing when you're going to get better or when you're going to be able to walk again when you're going to be able to do this again and when you're going to be able to is quite scary and waking up from a coma remembering how healthy and how kind of positive a guy you were to then being left in this body that's the same but doesn't work or move the same as it used to it is quite scary and very overwhelming in being able to listen to anyone when when you think you know better and and it, it wasn't till I broke my own habits was I then able to progress and again get as far as where I am today Mm, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating listening to you talk about that because uh, I think that's quite a unique uh, perspective on on what, what you've what you've experienced. Because I think with change, I think we all find change quite difficult. Interestingly, but for you, that became something different, didn't it? Because 
you were also trying to manage these real, really overwhelming feelings, as you say, of um, uncertainty, maybe even fear of, of you know what this all meant, and maybe resisting change became part of getting back a little bit of control over all of this because some of the things we're talking about and sort of so the physical things uh but also these cognitive changes are so important aren't they to our experience to how we view ourselves who we think we are well of course yeah and obviously like we're 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 talking of like frustration today and when you've kind of got like therapists saying like you shouldn't do that but you should do this and you can't do it that way because that's wrong and do it this way like obviously that has an element of frustration to itself but what 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 people need to remember like with and without the brain injury is the person with the brain injury is, is trying their probably very hardest to what want to be as close to were before before they occurred so being able to kind of give them that little bit of control will help minimize the frustration which will then help something else to be less intoxicated which then kind of helps the next part like it's it's quite a vicious circle like if you kind of stop any of the kind of domino squares from falling like they should in the in the order of which they should then 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 frustration that will be at the bottom will always be seen sort of thing whereas like i say if you can give that that that, that brain injured person that bit of chance to want to do something their way or trial it their way and if they fail you then don't go, oh, you failed this time, blah, 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 you should have listened to me. Approaching it in a way where you say, okay, so trying it your way, it hasn't worked. Can we try it my way? And let's see if we can get it any further. So then that that then starts the process of confidence. You give them that confidence to listen. You give them that confidence in being able to try what they want to try first. like, And being able to kind of heighten someone's confidence, I think you could lower someone's frustration i think it's really useful advice for maybe therapists and professionals who are working with uh, people who have had a brain injury then because i think sometimes there's a uh, a sense of there being a right or a wrong way of doing this with rehab and i'm not too sure that that's always terribly helpful because everyone's got to do it in their own way haven't they which is I think part of what you're saying that you have to learn through experience and you have to be allowed to make some of these mistakes and be supported to learn from that and that particularly early on when you're dealing with all of this other stuff can be particularly difficult yeah and, and one with a brain injury was obviously have their own strengths and weaknesses kind of thing but but certainly from the experience and the people that I've met throughout my recovery in 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 in, in head injuries and obviously being through rehab and stuff like that, that I that I found that most people were more successful just being given the chance to be shown that their way in thinking um isn't as successful as as to following a therapist, a carer or a parent's um, way in thinking. It's it's okay that, that therapists and professionals go to college and university and study what they know but i don't believe that every book that's black and white is as clear as life skills i think life skills are much more powerful than than a professional looking at a book and i'm not saying that these professionals that have done their qualifications 
don't know what they're on about. But what I mean is, obviously, the professionals will know more about what's going on and the problems that people occur and have. But I think being able to like, turn that into being able to teach how that person learns will be more successful. Yeah, and I was just thinking, Alan, as you were talking, that maybe there has been a change in this in the in the time since you were receiving your rehab directly after your injury, and that there's far more attention now paid to people's own lived experience of these problems compared to what's written in textbooks and what professionals learn through their training. So we're trying to get more of people like yourself to educate uh, professionals in terms of the best ways of approaching these difficulties and and just understanding them better through the lens of someone who's lived uh, lived the problems. Um, and I think that is different now compared to certainly when I trained as well. Then I have to say that um, there's far, far more emphasis now on... Um, on people's experiences and including that in learning, which I think is a very positive thing and is essential to what you're saying if we're going to get better healthcare professionals who are more sensitive to, to these issues. Alan, it reminds me of something you said earlier as well, which was about you uh, alluded to the um, experience of being tested, uh, formally tested, like my sort of psychologist and what have you for your claim. Um, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about that in terms of what that felt like during that period when some of these problems were really kind of quite intrusive and overwhelming. Yeah, it was a, it was a little bit frustrating in in scheme of of wording it because obviously not only was it being sort of like someone like yourself for for my side of the obviously the the claim, I was then seeing someone like yourself for their side of the claim and then on some on some occasions I was seeing someone like yourself Richard for the neutral side so who wasn't mine or their side but just wanted to give a general this would be the closest to the truth sort of like um, reasoning um, and my father was kind of like travelling what felt like all over Britain to see these different specialists and stuff like that and obviously not only was I kind of like very nervous and sort of like going to new areas and new places with people in the area, didn't know the locations. There wasn't any landmarks that I could kind of guard myself from. So not only did I felt like I was being thrown into a dark room with no lights and being told certain objects, but I'm meeting new people that don't know me before and after my car accident. They're only meeting me sort of like now and then giving me sort of like tests and everything that I don't think has any benefit to myself like that and then being told oh there's this wrong with him there's that wrong with him there's he can't do this and he can't do that like it's it that that certainly was frustrating because I was like well you don't know me sort of Adam from Eve and you're writing a whole paragraph about me when actually I could do that if you gave me a bit more time but obviously these professionals are not there to give you time and get to know you they're there to judge you on this one meeting for the court yeah, it was it was a very horrible time. Let's put it that way. That's I, I would say that during my court case taking place was probably the lowest I've been throughout my throughout my recovery. 
because I had no control of who who it was I saw when I saw them in in which in which environment that I got to see them it like I say it was a very it was a very controlled point of my life that was out of my out of mine and my parents control to be fair yeah i i I think these are points are incredibly important because obviously not everyone who has a brain injury will go through that process, but many people will, and your experience i think is really um instructive i think that often it's a process that people just get kind of pushed through and it just feels very disconnected to everything else and maybe also as you say can undermine their confidence and can undermine um their ability to sort of learn and uh, build confidence and i think that's really kind of that's really concerning the impact of that, isn't it, in terms of people's recovery? So, which you just kind of like um, expand on that, but also the ability for that person to then show what their what their full full damage is, like I say, because this this sort of like conscious nervousness that's in the back, because you're like, oh, I've got to meet Barry for the defendants, so I've got to go meet for my side, and then I've got to go meet Trevor for the for the middle one, because because of all this kind of like pressure behind. I don't think you're as able to kind of show your true healthy self or damaged self, depending on what side or sides your 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 um you're on, sort of thing. Yeah, I, I I just think it's it's such a big kind of issue. It's almost Alan, as if we could do a an entire discussion just about that process couldn't we, and aspects of it that, that were really difficult. Also, maybe other bits that were that you found more helpful, but it sounds like the bias would be towards things that really um, generated a sense of powerlessness or loss of control, which going back to your point about change, I think we tend to hang on to things when we feel out of control. We just hang on to what's familiar, even if it's not really working for us particularly. And that that's very... Um, undermining of rehabilitation isn't it potentially go back to kind of what we know rather than changing it even if the change would better you as a person you'd still quite willing to go back to do what you're used to doing yeah yeah i think so i think we just get we just stick with those familiar sort of patterns don't we because everything else seems too scary or overwhelming uncertain and Maybe the process of assessment and the litigation was just adding to that, uh, that the weight of everything that you were trying to, to carry at that time. Alan, that's, um, as ever, in the last sort of 35 minutes or so, just covered a huge range of things related to your experience. And it's always incredibly interesting listening to you. So thank you for, for talking again today. And maybe we can pick up on aspects of what you've talked about today in further discussions. Yes, correct. Yeah, I would like that a lot, Richard. Like I say, I'm, I'm be able to kind of give people the experience that I've obtained and, and be able to use it for their benefit for the future. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Alan. Nice to speak to you. You, Richard. Thank you again.